Well done, you made it. Um, episode 15 out of 15 of season one. And uh, Dan, who have we got today? So today for our final guest, we thought we'd end the series in style with the very stylish Simon Cook. Now, Simon is one of the best known VCs in London. Um, Rich and I are probably biased because we would definitely consider him a friend. Yeah. And yeah. from our point of view, he's therefore one of the most popular VCs in London. Now, VCs don't generally get a good reputation um, from people they work with. So it's very important to point out that neither Rich or I have ever actually got any money out of Simon. That's probably why we're friends. It's probably why we're friends, because we get to uh, pass the distinction off. But for those that do and have worked with Simon, as you'll hear in the episode, um, through a live feedback session with him, um, you know, things don't always go to plan when you're um, you know, providing venture capital into a business. Businesses don't always go to plan. And actually, the way you conduct yourself as a VC in a long career is the most important thing. Your reputation is everything. And Simon's is particularly impressive. He has a lot of friends um, that he has worked with. And I think that's pretty unusual too. Well, I think it's pretty... Uh, com- I mean, that's the whole VC model, isn't it? That if you go into VC, you've got to expect that you're going to have some rough companies. Unless you're Simon. And let's just, well, even, no, but even if you're Simon. Even if you're Simon. <laughs> okay, fine. So, anyway, from very humble beginnings in Birmingham, um, today's guest takes us through the uh, quite amazing rise of his own venture capital firm. And what I really like about this is actually Simon's perspective that um, he's an entrepreneur. He's every bit as much an entrepreneur as we are. He has to go to investors all the time with his checkbook and um, ask for money, and he has to... Uh, go and pitch businesses all the time and you know fundamentally the way that he describes a venture capital firm which I think is probably the best detail description of the history of venture capital why it works how it works and what happens from his side of the table um, is actually some of the best description I've ever had the pleasure of hearing um, with regards to how the whole system works so if you're the type of person that thinks you're ever likely to need venture capital funding this is 100% 100% essential listening to you. And if you don't think you are, then perhaps just listening to a charismatic and charming gentleman like Mr. Simon Cook will do you just fine. So without further ado, Rich, can you please hit play? From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders. Today's special guest is, unlike many of our other guests, a man who turned to the dark side, as it were, as one of the key venture capital investors in the UK, the CEO and founder of Draper Esprit, Mr. Simon Cook. For all those that were hoping to listen to an in-depth interview with a right-arm medium-fast bowler who played for Middlesex and Kent at first-class level between 99 and 2012, you're out of luck, because although this Simon Cook has both the accent and the look of a man who could play county cricket... He's instead dedicated his time to building the UK ecosystem of big winners and next generation entrepreneurial successes by investing in pioneering and innovative businesses. He's not quite yet risen to the levels of fame held by his other namesake, Simon Cook, the Canadian lumber merchant born in 1831, who also has his own Wikipedia page. But that's mostly because the modern day Simon Cook has spent his time most recently focused on disrupting the traditional VC structure by taking his uh, company public on an IPO that raised over £100 million of permanent capital, as he calls it, which he intends to use to grow the UK's influence globally. He's been involved... Is that right? Yeah, I'm yeah. 
He's been involved in some of the best-known deals in the UK, including Love Film, Greys and Trustpilot, and has very kindly offered to come in today and answer some questions for us, sitting on the other side of the table from the entrepreneur, though it's worth mentioning before he does, he's done that bit too, once upon a time, and that constant fascination with disruption is indeed what led, led him to innovate the traditional VC model. So without further requirement for monologue, it's time to formally or informally get to know our guest, Simon Cook. Hello, sir. Hello. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Are you familiar with your other namesakes? Uh, I, I, well, I have uh, never Googled my own name, of course, so I uh, wouldn't uh, have seen any of that before. And please don't ask me anything about cricket. Okay. <laughs> and are you upset to know that a lumber merchant has a Wikipedia page and you still don't yet? Well, he, uh, would you say he was a fellow Canadian? So that's fine. Are you a Canadian? I am actually Canadian. I grew oh, up, okay. I grew up in uh, Vancouver. So uh, well, I was born in, born in uh, Birmingham, which was the Silicon Valley of the universe 200 years ago. But um, uh, yeah, I grew up in Canada. Maybe it is then. It might be. Maybe I have a you have secret really number aged. business. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Where were you in 1833? Um, okay, so before we get started, we'd like to warm up some of our guests with a quick fire round. So very quickly, whiskey or wine? Uh, wine. Public or private company? Uh, it, um, hybrid, both. Nice. Does that exist? Me. Are you? Okay. Yeah, we went public, so you don't have to, Daniel. Okay, very smart. Very smart. Entrepreneur or VC? Uh, both. Hybrid. I knew you'd say that. Okay, <laughs> interesting. So, so all these yeah, questions. Zuckerberg or Musk? Hybrid? Um, uh, oh, definitely Musk. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, being in the UK for Brexit or Trump being your president? Ouch. Um, uh, I was actually being, I was in America the day of the election, uh, and it was uh, I was it's, it was hard not to be smug, um, but it didn't feel good being smug. But uh, the faces of the people on the West Coast were very similar to the faces of people in London. So the whole world's going sideways. At so the you're moment. probably going to say Brexit then in, in that case. Uh, I uh, I think well uh, Trump can go after four years. Brexit is going to take more than four years to fix. Very true. That's very true. And uh, finally, e-commerce or gaming as an industry. Ah, ooh, uh, um, well, as uh, my first company that I founded when I was 19 was a computer games company, so I guess I have to say gaming. Fair enough. Um, okay, so going back to the story of who is the real Simon Cook with no Wikipedia page, can you take us back to your roots? You mentioned that you uh, were born in Birmingham, but you grew up in Canada. So what was it like growing up for you? What was your upbringing? Uh, I, uh, so yeah, born in um uh, Birmingham moved to Canada as a young uh, kid and do, did most of my schooling in Canada. So I kind of consider myself kind of North American. Where? Uh, in Vancouver mainly. Okay. So West Coast, uh, North West Coast. Um, and I guess, you know, I was fortunate enough to uh, have my, my dad was worked in construction, uh, moved around, but he bought home an IBM, uh, a PC at some point in the 70s, dare I say it. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to have a computer at home very early on in the home computer revolution. I probably threw myself into that quite a lot. So I was probably your, your uh, archetypal uh, 80s computer geek kid uh, writing you know, software in the, in the bedroom late at night with a few other geeky kids in the, in the school computer club. And there was no Reddit or anything to be posting on at the time, so it was all just meetups? <clears throat> Well, actually, well, no. So, uh, you know, the I think we had a modem, and we used to download some homework off uh, some, before the internet, but you know, off of uh, the various networks that were around. So, we were doing some online stuff. In fact, I probably shouldn't say this, but one of my first ever business ventures was uh, selling copies of games uh, illegally uh, or not uh, to my fellow uh, schoolmates, um, which we would, you know, find from various different uh, sources. And did, did you go to university? 
so yeah, we I came back to the UK to go to uh, do uh, computer science at Manchester, which is where actually uh, it's amazing how the world's changed. So I, st- I actually had a gap year working in the video game industry where the CEO was 21, I was 17 or 18, and every employee was, you know, it was, this is, this is the late 80s, but we were in a kind of tech startup with young CEOs, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we were making computer games and making a lot of money. And actually, I nearly didn't go to university. I was kind of going to drop out and stay in the games industry, but they gave me a, a load of kit as a leaving present so I could work at night while I was at university. And, and the world was a very different place, and I actually never told a single person in the university that I was working because I felt they would throw me off the course for not being academically minded. You, you're you supposed to study at university, not make money. So I never told any of my professors that I was writing games and making money uh, on the side, which they, of course, everybody would, you know, there's a whole, there's whole entrepreneurship you know, communities and cultures and societies you can join, but that didn't exist in the, in the late 80s. So you've been in venture capital since 1995, but what were you actually doing before that? So you mentioned the gaming company that you started in. So yeah, so again, uh, part of the culture that you know, you you after university, you kind of have to be proud of the thing you're going to do. That your mom wants you got to tell your mom you've got a proper job. So after, uh, in the careers office, you know, obviously entrepreneurship wasn't a choice. Video games didn't seem to be a real choice, and actually Nintendo was coming in with the console. The, the games industry was moving from home bedroom to um, a much more serious business at the time. So uh, some flash git in a nice suit came round on the milk round and said you're not a real man unless you're an investment banker or management consultant uh, or an accountant but I wasn't going to be an accountant it makes um, it feel better when I left Nottingham <laughs> we had exactly the same chat yeah. and that was that was in 2007 and it was exactly the same chat accountant yeah. or management consultant so yeah so I uh, I said well I have to prove that I so I applied to Anderson Consulting and uh, got rejected from there but ended up at KPMG Management Consulting and spent a couple of years wearing a suit going around the city doing consulting stuff um, for a couple of years, but then thought about getting back into the games industry. But around that time, Wired Magazine launched the first one, not David Rowan's one, the one from yeah. the, the 90s. And I picked up a copy of uh, uh, Wired Magazine in about 93. Uh, I thought, wow, this is amazing. The world is changing. And actually, maybe there's a combination of consulting and video gaming. And I bumped into the guy running media consulting at KPMG, and he said, we need to build a digital practice. The world is changing. So I helped inside KPMG start up the internet group in uh, 94, 93. And my clients were uh, investors who, uh, I I was a young kid, didn't know much about anything, but they they asked me to write some reports on set-top boxes. So I did the IPO of Pace, um, did some multimedia investing, invested in some Brighton-based video uh, CD-ROM companies. I used to write the reports for the venture capitalists. Uh, and then after a couple of years, they, 3i was ramping up a tech team. And they said, well, instead of having generalist nice people paying Simon to write the reports on these companies, why don't we train Simon to be a venture capitalist? And I joined 3i uh, and was put through you know, a very rigorous, highly skilled training program about how to uh, read a balance sheet and invest in a startup. Uh, and so that's how I got from writing games to writing reports to writing checks. So what made you actually attracted to go into VC as an industry rather than actually um, going into an industry that you love, like gaming and, and carrying on there and becoming an angel investor, for example? So I, you know, Have you ever uh, done angel investment, actually? Have you ever been in a situation where you're able to or have you always been in a VC and therefore not able to? So I've... Um, so, uh... Before I was a VC, I didn't have the money to, uh, you know, I was like everybody else with a mortgage and a, and a young wife and a kid, uh, so I didn't have a lot of spare capital. And then once you become a VC, usually you're precluded from having your own side vehicles. And because we invest at most stages, uh, you know, I've put 
everything we invested is through the company historically. So I haven't done a huge amount of uh, side investing. It's all been through, you know, I, and I tend to fall in love with the investments I make. So it's, if I'm going to have that much passion and focus and support, we might as well put it through the business rather than being something on the side. But I think going into venture capital, I've always, my dad was quite entrepreneurial. Um, you know, there are many episodes of Only Fools and Horses, which, uh, you know, look pretty much like my father and grandfather and family who are always trying to make, you know, some money on the side or find a deal. Or my dad would often sit and having a beer with me inventing new kinds of crazy things. So he's a kind of mad inventor, entrepreneur who never had the chance to actually fulfill that. So uh, I had a paper round from, from very, I guess the two defining features, it was mucking around with computers and having a job as a paper round or doing various. So I always made money and my father always instilled on me, you know, you've got to try and be successful and, and try and make money and, and, and to be commercial. So I've always, you know, always been fascinated by startups and making money and inventing, inventing, I guess, as it used to be before it was startup and, and putting those two things together just was is a, is a passion. So I've always been, you know, I've always found my job. It's an absolute uh, honor and a privilege to be able to take other people's money, sit alongside really smart, incredibly creative uh, people who are, are changing the world and, and to uh, and to share in that experience uh, and and to uh, get paid to do it. So it, it, it for me, it, I guess I found my job is being an investor and a venture capitalist is, is, is my passion. And uh, I guess that's why I'm still doing it and still enjoying it 20 years later. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So 20 years in the uh, in the VC industry already. So I guess in, in the UK, that makes you one of the uh, incumbents, really. Um, you're now the CEO of Draper Esprit. 
Can you tell us why are there so many variants of the word Draper in the VC world? So between Draper Associates, Draper Esprit, DFJ Esprit, Draper Fisher, Draper yeah. Fisher even, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this so-called Draper and how you got involved? Uh, after World War II, yes. um, there was a need to rebuild the economies of the Western world. And um, there were uh, different people asked to do that. Now, uh, over here in in the UK, the government forced the banks to create something called Investors in Industry, which went on to become 3i, where I ended up working. And that, that was a, it was a bit like BGF now. It was a, a balance sheet uh, where people would give money to SMEs, young companies that needed to grow. In America, they asked uh, somebody called General Draper to do that. Now, General Draper had been in charge of uh, the Marshall Plan. He was an economic advisor to... Um, uh, to governments, uh, and he had been actively involved in reconstructing the economies of uh, Japan and of Europe. Uh, and when he went back to the States, he was asked to help build uh, venture capital vehicles, and uh, he listed one. So he had one listed in New York, uh, and that didn't, you know, under SEC regulations and disclosure, the public markets in, in America are very different than the public markets here. Um, and that didn't, and it didn't work. And he felt that he wanted to go down the private route. So he actually moved to Palo Alto and bought, um, into an orchard farm. There was nothing there, and he started the first ever venture capital fund called Draper, Galthwaite, and Anderson in 1957-58. So Tim Draper's grandfather literally invented the venture industry in Palo Alto. Right. Okay. Uh, Tim Draper's father went on to create a venture capital firm called Sutter Hill, which is one of the best names that's been around in the late 60s, 70s, and invested in all kinds of great and wonderful companies. I, I won't, There's a whole book on it, and I won't name them in case I get them wrong, but some of the biggest names uh, from the 70s and 80s were investments made by Tim Draper's grandfather. So it was only natural that Tim Draper moved into the venture industry, as his entire family had been doing it from the beginning, and he founded Draper Fisher Dravetson in 1985 with uh, John Fisher initially, and then Steve Javetson came in. And, and, DFJ, and, and DFJ is um, largely misunderstood in the venture world because they are very, for me, the perfect venture company has a combination of out-and-out out entrepreneurship and market forces, which what Tim represents. You need financial acumen and, and, and some control and sort of you need to be, you know, to manage the numbers. And John Fisher was a, a very much a kind of brought that element as a East Coast uh, um, financially, you know, focused guy, and then you need to understand the science and technology. And Steve Javetson is an amazing person who really gets deep into the technology and science of startups. And so, they were to me the perfect venture firm, but they also were very cutting edge. And so they tried lots of different things. So one of the first things they ever did was to create a little network of seed funds in America. So they had, uh, they had literally had uh, partners. Uh, in Alaska through to Florida, up into Northwest. And some of them used the Draper name, some of them didn't. But quite often, it's really hard to invest in venture capital because if you do something different, um, LPs kind of don't like it or you know they, they get a bit worried. And, it, and these investments and ideas can take 10 or 20 years to see them working. So a lot of what Tim and Draper Fisher were doing in terms of changing the model you know, it didn't. It wasn't obvious it was working first. And the first iteration of anything, you know, there is a minimum viable product. So the first network was a little bit mixed success. Um, they then were the first venture firm in 99 to go global. So they then said, actually, there's entrepreneurs outside the valley. And no other VC in the valley was investing that much outside at all, really. And they went to China and India and Europe, and they set up ePlanet. And DFG Planet was a single global fund that did things like Baidu. So they bought 28% of Baidu for $7 million, which is now worth $20 billion. They did Skype uh, and various others. But they found that a single global fund was even though it got into some great deals, it was too big and wieldy. 
And so in 96, 97, they went to the next iteration of the network, which was lots of seed funds in America and one global fund to let's go out and find the best partner in each region. And somehow they, uh, they bumped into us. In fact, we went to Sand Hill Road. So Stuart and I founded the business in Esprit in 2006. And we definitely, Stuart had set up 3i in the, in the Valley. So my co-founder had been in the Valley as a VC for four years. We definitely wanted a, v, a Valley partner. So Stuart and I went up and down Sand Hill Road and pitched all the VCs to buy a minority stake into Esprit and become our partner. And all the other VCs, because they hadn't really run networks, they were still thinking we need a global fund and they wanted us to be reporting to them. And we could be like this little satellite office of their funds. But DFJ really understood they needed to empower us as entrepreneurs. If we were going to be successful, we needed, we needed to run Europe. Uh, and so we sold them a stake in the business. They they, get, they invested a few million dollars and we became their partner as DFJ Esprit. Um, and then we have uh, DFJ or Draper partners in Japan, in Korea, in China uh, and all around the world. So, the, so is that like some annual Draper conference every year where everyone that's ever had a Draper associated so with we, a name? It's like we thousands do, of you. Yeah, so we do have a big annual Draper. Uh, and so uh, and then... Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, DFJ itself decided to focus more on the Valley and Tim left and, became, and took the global network with him. So we went from DFJ to, uh, network to Draper network because DFJ is now a Valley focused group right, okay. doing early stage uh, Valley deals uh, and they have DFJ growth. And then uh, Tim took the global network a lot and we went with that. And so the rest, so the global activities now are branded under Tim and work with Tim. Uh, and uh, we became the Draper Network, and that's why we're Draper Esprit now, and we have, again, funds. And, yes, yeah, so every year, um, twice a year, we get together. Uh, but the big conference is in November in California where we have our CEO event where we get a few hundred CEOs together along with 50 to 100 uh, big uh, tech companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook. Uh, and we have a, a, you know, a big conference, and we share ideas, and we, we get entrepreneurs from all over the world sharing uh, ideas and contacts, and it's quite an exciting and fun event. Um, we, we just came back a, a few weeks ago, and survived. And survived. It does uh, sound like it would be a lot of fun. Um, can you talk to us? You, you mentioned, and just for the sake of uh, for listeners uh, and younger listeners especially, so you've used uh, acronyms like LP, and of course we talk about VC. Hmm. So let's start with: uh, Can you actually describe what a VC is in your own words? Like, what does what does it set out to do? What's the purpose of a VC in an ideal world? So uh, VC stands for Victoria Cross, and it means that I'm a very brave soldier. Uh, now, is that <laughs> not the right so. answer? <laughs> Absolutely. And moving on, an LP? I think. <laughs> I have to be very careful. Uh, LP stands for a limit. No, so VC is venture capital. And I guess that means capital, and it means venture in the adventure sense. So it's risk capital. In its truest sense, it comes from um, Victorian coffee houses when four or five hundred years ago um, a group of people would meet in a coffee house down the road here and say let's get together some money and buy a ship and a crew and send that crew off and uh, around the world and maybe a few years later they might turn back with a hold full of gold and uh, goodies and spices and we'll make a fortune or we might lose all that money and never see it again so venture capital really started I guess uh, in in the in the days of exploration when we would fund management teams to take you know Teams of startups in their wooden boats and sail around the world, and maybe occasionally a few years later come back with. Some they would return. deserve a Victoria Cross. And actually, there were and and, and the, the idea that twenty percent of the profits comes from that time carried interest meant the captain's carry of the hold. So when the crew got back, the crew got twenty percent of what was left in the hold, and that's why we get twenty percent carry from investing. You know, it's a, it's not quite the same today. We don't we do, we don't expect our. Uh, startups to go out for three years not see them and, and die on their adventures and <laughs> scrabble back to London although some of them are actually probably even more exciting journeys than that but um, 
you know, the, the whole idea is about taking uh, a risk with a group of people who are going on an adventure uh, and sharing in some of that bounty when it comes back. And that's where venture capital comes from. Um, in terms of science-based venture capital, uh, actually a large part of it, um, the Silicon Valley of the world was in Birmingham where my family comes from um, in the 1800s when we were science was the new toolkit and we were inventing things like soap and iron uh, and, and steam engines. And, and that was because chemistry was becoming understood and a guy with a chemistry idea would go along to uh, a venture capitalist and raise money to then build products uh, uh, and then market them. So there were there were venture capitalists in Birmingham 250 years ago. They were backing scientists who would create products like soap or steel or, or porcelain or pottery. And then they would build global businesses and, and invest all over the world then uh, take those products all over the world. And the Industrial Revolution came on the back of that. 100 years ago, there was a, a textile revolution. People used to make all their own clothes and then uh, typewriter, uh, sewing machines, not typewriters, sewing machines came in. And there were a lot of um, retail startups you hear about today, like, um, you know, uh, Debenhams and uh, Moss Bros. And a lot of these big names uh, were, were startups 100 years ago when people could actually start manufacturing clothes and build startups then. And now, of course, today we have the digital revolution. And so what venture capitalists do today is, you know, people with laptops and building apps and teams that can create new products and services in a digital space, we can now put risk capital behind them. And hopefully they're going to create something with a lot of value. And, and, and we share in 20% of the profits of that with our investors. And uh, LP, just to clarify. And so, and, so L, and so historically, um, there's, as I said, there's, we invest other people's money. In America, because General Draper moved to California, he took a 10-year limited partnership structure, which used to be used for oil and gas exploration. So if you, if you dug a hole in the ground uh, with oil rights, it was basically a 10-year fund. So you'd get five years to explore, and then you'd get five years of the, the profits from that. And so a 10-year fund was taken as an off-the-shelf way to invest in technology. Now, our, and, and that's called a limited partnership fund, which lasts, you have five years to invest and five years to sell. And for some reason, that kind of has been the model that's used over in America. In Europe, we have lots of different models. And a lot of us have tried the American model and found that actually it takes longer than five years to build the best companies. Um, and, we, and, and investors here don't like to have their money locked up for 10 years. They want to have a bit more flexibility. So what we've discovered is that uh, limited partners who give their money away for 10 years and then wait for it to come back isn't necessarily uh, the right answer. It's, it, you know, some people do that here, but there's a lot of people in the city that want to invest in a, a longer term structure. So our structure is permanent. We, we, we raise capital and when we sell a company, we keep it and we just keep growing the balance sheet. So we don't, we don't have limited partners anymore. We now have shareholders. Okay. You probably see more entrepreneurs than most. So talk to us a little bit about entrepreneurship. What do you see uh, as very common traits? So you meet a bunch of entrepreneurs. What's the thing that you always see that they, they tend to have? Is there, are there commonalities or is it the difference that is the difference? I think, um, so we look for real entrepreneurs, people who can see the world in a different way. You know, uh, Tim and, 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 and Draper team, the guys have backed people like Elon Musk, you know, when uh, in, in electric cars, when nobody was talking about electric cars. Well, I saw they did SpaceX And well. SpaceX. And yeah. so, yeah, so, and so, you know, that's almost the epitome of the ultimate entrepreneur. A guy comes in and reinvents an industry that hasn't been invented in DFJ. So I take a lot of inspiration for what Tim and, and those guys have done there. Um, so yeah, we're looking for those people. We're looking for real entrepreneurs. And what does that mean? That means somebody who's got a vision for the way the world should be uh, and, and can see that there's, there's products, whether it's a Steve Jobs or others, there's something the world needs and they, they haven't got it yet. And he wants to build that and has a real vision 
for the products that he wants to deliver. So we look for that. I hate, there's an entire industry growing up about how to raise money and there's so many companies set up just to be invested in by VCs. So we tend to look for companies that aren't looking for money, right? We don't like the people who are, oh, I've done that seed round, now I do the A, I do the, you know, the, all these people that play with these metrics and think raising money is a sign of success. For me, we, we try and pe find people who are really passionate, are focusing on big needs and are building products, you know, the hard way, like through graft and perseverance and struggling through the ups and downs. And uh, and that's what excites us. And, um, you know, we look and a product visionary. You can build a team. It doesn't have to be the perfect team because you can hire a CFO and a CMO and a CTO. But you do need, a, at the heart of it, a founder who has a vision, uh, which you know, has led us into companies like, like, like Gray's um, and, uh, and Trustpilot and others over here in Europe. Uh, where the founders really have a passion and a vision for what they're doing and actually uh, globally. So their ideas are actually, uh, nobody's doing similar things elsewhere. So we, so the European entrepreneur, we can help them go international with, with that vision. And, and we do like to see people who've really, uh, you know, done lots of pivots, who've, 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 you know, who've struggled through to get it right and haven't just raised money for the sake of it. Um, you know, one of the investments we just closed recently was Perkbox. Perkbox is a, an amazing startup, some of you know, doing SME um, perks. Uh, so, so you can reward your employees and give them benefits. And, you know, they're, they're a company, uh, they publicly, they've said they're going to do 14 million this year, up from four last year and growing at a huge rate. They've only ever raised 350K five years ago for five years. They built uh, through you know trial and tribulation and not taking salaries and working really hard to get the product right, and now you know, they're in amazing shape and have a great company, uh, and uh, and they their company was set up to make their customers happy and their employees happy, and it's a wonderful thing for us to invest in that type of company. So you don't necessarily see uh, a pattern of you know the high growth, for example. So did their C round, and six months later they're straight into VC because they're growing at that rate. Actually, there are edge cases and plenty of them where you've built a business over a period of time, got it to be profitable or at least growing very quickly at that point, and it's still attractive as a VC. So I think as a founder, you kind of feel like maybe you missed the boat if you don't do it, and that's basically the zeitgeist where the PR around in the industry is if you don't do x y and z within three years you know, no one wants to touch you because you're not hot property at that point and is that something you share yeah no i think you know i really it does you know i think um you know there's 10 million smes in europe and 10 million in, in the us and there's about a thousand companies raise a small amount of money in about in, in the states about 1500 growth rounds in europe there's about 300 growth rounds but there's 10 million smes and i think there are some amazing companies right and I think we should, entrepreneurship for me means building a, an economically viable company. It doesn't have to be growing. It doesn't have to be a billion dollars. I love small companies. I love entrepreneurs that create, you know, great places to work and really happy employees. Now, occasionally you can invest in those companies and make a lot of money. But, you know, the, most companies don't want venture capital. And some of the best companies in the world get screwed up by venture capital. Venture capital is the wrong thing for many companies and we should celebrate entrepreneurship we should celebrate smes you know nobody has a job for life anymore big companies are, are, are crumbling and the future is a small company but you know if a small company doesn't raise money it doesn't mean it's a bad company and, and, and very few do raise money and so it, i like to find the entrepreneurs that are building great businesses and i i, I like to have to chase them and convince them to take money from us mm. because with our money and this is why venture capital is important what we can do is unlock growth so if it's working really well what we like to do is say you're doing really well but if we put some money in and helped you with some strategic advice how to enter asia or america or europe you can you know make real value and actually nobody else is doing what you're doing and we think if you can move quick enough you'll capture the market position and other companies will value that incredibly so you know we like to find companies 
where our money makes sense and they're not set up purely, you know, because they think they're having to play this uh, textbook, you know, series ABC game. Mm. Okay. So who are the most impressive entrepreneurs you've met? So apart from the obvious, you know, Elon being part of the network, uh, over here in Europe, you know, we've worked with wonderful people like William Reeve and Alex Chesterman who've done amazing things over the years multiple yep. times. Graham Bosher, Grays and, and now Tails, where we've been fortunate to be shareholders. Um, uh, you know, amazing. Uh, Nicholas Enstrom at Skype, fantastic. You know, when Tim, you know, again, Tim, I actually said no to Skype and Tim said yes, which is, uh, you know, explain. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm still learning. But, were right uh, eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> after the, you know, after they were in the product. But... Yeah, Nicholas is uh, an incredible entrepreneur. Again, he, you know, he'd done Kazar and other things before. So Skype was not his first adventure there. Sure. So there are some, you know, incredible entrepreneurs around. Um, some of the most amazing ones not celebrated. Uh, a lady, um, uh, you know, that... Um, Paula Byrne from Pushbutton, who was acquired by Amazon, now runs or has now moved on, or retired, but um, you know built uh, Amazon's global streaming business here in London. So there's there's some hidden uh, talent of real successful entrepreneurs in the tech industry. Many of them are under the radar mm. uh, in, in in London, and, and I guess that's a personal choice as well for the entrepreneur whether they want to talk about it or not. Um, so, what's the best uh, deal you've done, and why? If you could pick one deal and all your deals with that one on repeat. <laughs> Well, I, you know, every uh, you, I, I personally have to fall in love with every deal I do. I kind of have to fall in love. And when I was much younger, I almost think, right, I'm going to quit my job as a VC because this is going to be so successful. I'm going to have to join this company. Uh, and I actually did the deal where one of my VC partners in another firm did quit his job and, and join the startup. So, you know, if, if you don't really believe that it's going to be that, you know, a world changing company, you, you shouldn't invest. And we always kind of fall in love with, our, with the people we invest in. So it's, it's hard to pick one. But I suppose the one that was perhaps the most um, well-known uh, success story from a tech kind of point of view was when James Collier came into my office in 98, I guess it was, and drew a circuit diagram on the wall. And he said, I can make a radio chip for $2. And I said, well, what do we do with that? And he said, well, your phone at the moment, your Nokia phone has an infrared point and click. So you can share information with me over infrared, but nobody uses it. Um, and it's $2. And if you want to put a radio chip in today, it's $20 and nobody can afford it. And the battery life is you put a Wi-Fi chip into a phone, it kills it. So he thought, well, I can make a chip, radio chip for $2, single chip, uh, radio CMOS chip. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe all the Nokia guys will take out the infrared and put radio in, but nobody will ever turn it on because nobody used infrared, but it just sounded like a cool thing. Uh, and so we did the $10 million Series A round. So uh, Amadeus and myself um, put $10 million in through 3i, uh, in the A round, uh, and we helped build Cambridge Silicon Radio, which went on to get 50% market share of all Bluetooth headsets and devices in the world. And obviously, everybody knows what Bluetooth is now, but the first couple of years of CSR, it was very hard to get it funded because the, it was a European technology a leader, and the Valley thought Wi-Fi could do everything because they think, you know, a, a lot of the U.S. investors or U.S. engineers look at big horse, horsepower as a solution. They have a lot of uh, resources. So they have big computers, big cars, big everything. So they, you know, big batteries. Who cares if, you know, your phone battery dies quickly? And so we we stuck to that. And people wouldn't invest, but eventually, people came around and CSR went on. And the founders were adamant to go public. They didn't want to sell out. They wanted to build a real long-term business. And we listed it on LSE. Ultimately, then that acquired a bunch of other things and was bought by Qualcomm. Mm. You know, for two and a half billion a few years later. But that you know that literally was a a guy right in, you know, in a circuit diagram on a wall. You know, uh, for three people and an idea through to a you know a multi-billion-dollar IPO. Bluetooth in itself has been through a bit of a journey and still popular today. Amazingly, after all that time, so it's still very very relevant. 
Sorry to interrupt. Uh, we're going to just take a short little break uh, at the moment. Just we have one request, and it's only going to take thirty seconds. But firstly, can you subscribe? Make sure you don't miss out on the next series of Secret Leaders. You can do this on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on YouTube. Just go there, search for Secret Leaders, and subscribe. And our second request is: whilst you're here on your phone. Can you please just send us an email, hello at secretleaders.com, with your one suggestion of a guest for the next series? It might be somebody you know, might be somebody uh, you've listened to before and you just want to hear uh, an interview with us on. Um, but it, we'd be really grateful if you could just give us one suggestion. Uh, we've already got about half of our roster lined up for the next series, but we're looking for some really great guests. And the best way is to find out what, what you all want. So uh, I'll let you get back to the interview with Simon, but uh, I look forward to seeing your emails. Um, okay, so what's the, who are the best angel investors you've worked with? Because you obviously have to do deals alongside VCs. Definitely not going to ask you to name and shame certain VCs because we already know that you won't answer that because you're too sensible. But great angel investors you've worked alongside. Uh, you know, there's a, it's, a very, um, it's a very blurry uh, line because what tends to happen is uh, people become entrepreneurs, start a company, uh, then they make a bit of money, they sell out, and then they do some angel investing. And then some of those angel investments kind of scale up and then they take third-party money and they become VCs. So, you know, a lot of... Uh, VCs in the industry have come through the entrepreneur angel VC route. So there's people like Herman Hauser has been, you know, investing in startups for for decades uh, as an angel and, and has built a venture fund uh, on top of that. Um, you know, there's other incredible groups, like, you know, uh, people out of the whole love film mafia, I guess if you call it that. There's Alex Chesterman and William Reeve and all of those guys. Simon Culver. Simon Culver is now a VC, haven't been uh, done some angel things. So there's there's a whole gang around that. Uh, Sherry Kutu and the Cambridge Angels. We uh, we do a lot in Cambridge, and uh, uh, you know, and, and I think was that she three eye as well. Um, she was uh, well. She was she was uh, she was uh, her company was uh, Interactive Investors. So her uh, she used to fight with three eye because she was I I I, but it was a different three eye. So yeah, she was Interactive Investors, uh, and she IPO. But I actually met her in the '90s when I was at KPMG, and uh, she was looking to IPO her business. I've known her a long time. But I think the, the common thing is, is a um, you know the industry's growing up a lot, and the terms, a lot of the terms are very similar now. You know, the, the, an angel term sheet, you know, is, is very you know looks very similar to a VC term sheet for us. And we we try and keep it very simple. At the end of the day, we want uh, we don't want to own the company. Uh, we, you know, it's other people's money for us, so we need probably a little bit more protection than angels need because it's their money. Um, uh, but we don't, you know, we want a minority stake and we want to have some input and influence, but we don't want control. All we can ever be—it's a bit like a carpool karaoke. You know, we're, we're in the car with the entrepreneur driving, and there's a few other people, and sometimes, you know, we're in the back seat and we can shout and jump up and down and wave as much as we want. But it's a bit dangerous if you start grabbing the steering wheel and trying to. So it's kind of when you when you invest. You're along for the ride, but you have to kind of give directions. Uh, and the best angels, you know, work that way, but they can take a bit more risk because it's their money. We we do have fiduciary duty to our investors, our LPs, or our shareholders, uh, and therefore we ask for a little bit more uh, protections. But we also, at the end of the day, uh, recognise it's the entrepreneurs who are driving the car, and all we can ever do is try and help them mm. go in the right direction. And to that, are there any angels that you will particularly follow? Because you know they've got a good track record at finding early stage companies. Yeah, is that a thing? Yeah, I think you know. Again, I my advice is always uh, you know you know again it's not it raises little raise money as few times as possible. So you know it, seed rounds and early stage rounds are great and to get things proven. Uh, you know and, and and we do a lot. So I think there's 
you know, the right companies have a mixture of angels and VCs, and there's quite a lot of early stage VCs. So it's it's a very blurry line. You know, we we also have um, we work a lot with all the angels. We also have EIS funds that we co-invest. So we we have our PLC balance sheet, but we also raise every year uh, EIS funds from all the angels. So a lot uh, a lot of angels invest in our EIS funds, and then we just go off and do half a dozen deals or a dozen deals a year and put them in on their behalf. They're still EIS direct investors, but we're doing all the board meetings and, and management on their mm. behalf. So we have a lot of angels who invest in our funds as well as work alongside us. And there are great ones. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, there's some, I'm not going to name names because there's too many of them, but there's, you know, there's there's a lot of good angel groups. And of course, we're, you know, the, the crowd is a new extension of that. We've just come on to my next question, actually, which is what do you think of crowdfunding? Because obviously there's been a legacy of uh, VCs not liking crowdfunding because it eats into their pie. And at the same time, uh, it does a great job of uh, democratizing the opportunity, really, for your average Joe to find investors. If you don't have a network of angels and you don't know how to pitch to a VC, and it really opens up an opportunity. So what is your thoughts on crowdfunding? So I guess, I guess you know, being uh, more open-minded than most, I think we, we probably started off being a bit worried, is this, uh, is this um, the worst company selling you know, bad investments to grandmothers, uh, which is a lot, a lot of people, I think, thought of crowdfunding. And then actually on a, an ice trip, I bet uh, you know, Alex from Just Park and a number of other people who had started to use crowdfunding as a very sensible complement to their other investors. So I'm a big believer in hybrid investing, but we become we became very positive of crowdfunding as a community approach. You know, if your community can buy into your company as part of your growth story and your community building, it becomes quite exciting. So we became very big advocates of the democratization and the benefits of community ownership. Uh, so we you know, we invested in Crowdcube and in Cedars, and we worked with both of them. And we you know we recently Perkbox was recently a joint crowd deal with us, and we've got quite a few in the pipeline now where we invest alongside the crowd. So I, I'm a huge believer, and even to the point where you know uh, when we went public and listed our funds, effectively you know an IPO is just a big crowd fund. You know we we you know anybody can buy shares, and a lot of entrepreneurs in London have. Um, so we crowdfunded our funds and uh, you know, removed those layers, if you like of all the different steps. In the old days, you would invest in a pension fund who would then hire an advisor who would then put it in a PE fund. By the time your money got to me, there's five layers of fees taken and you don't even know what your money's in. And by by democratizing crowdfunding or IPOing venture funds, it allows people to have much closer access to their investments uh, without all of the costs of the city. So you are an advocate for it, essentially. Anything, Absolutely. Yeah, anything you think the future of uh, investing in general is going to be a hybrid approach, angels, crowd, VCs, and I guess probably other forms as well that don't even exist yet. What do you think about the AI VC? Uh, well, like all of us who are going to lose our jobs to robots, we're all completely convinced our job is safe. So, um... A good man, okay. Well, then moving swiftly on, <laughs> um, can you share us an interesting fact that no one knows about you? If you come to my house for a drink one night, you might have me entertain you uh, with a uh, my karaoke piano. So I have a piano. You can pick any song. Brilliant. We can pull it up off the internet and the MIDI track comes up and I will sit in front of the piano and play for you that song and we'll have a good old sing song. The truth is I can't play a note. Uh, my piano is completely automated. That's incredible. And I usually get most people so drunk they don't notice my fingers aren't actually touching the keys. But yeah, we have a lot of good sing-song karaoke nights. I mean, having um, had Michael Acton Smith, that sounds exactly like something you'd get on Firebox. <laughs> yes. um, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? You've been entrepreneurial with your approach to VC, so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm absolutely, you know, um, I, I have the best of both worlds. I get to be a VC with entrepreneurs, but I've had the luxury of building my own business uh, 10 years ago, uh, founding that and having gone through fundraisings and 
you know, selling a stake to, 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 to Draper uh, and then to doing the IPO. So, you know, I've lived the life that entrepreneurs live, which makes me, I think, have a much better and deeper insight into what the people we invest in are going through. So very fortunate to do both. Um, but I do, you know, consider myself having, you know, been through building a business. And, and what's really exciting now, the platform that we have, which is really now, even though it's 10 years in, we're really now starting to accelerate. And I can see, you know, Draper Esprit being here for 20 years. What we're building on the, in, in the, on the public stock market has plenty of room to grow. Some of the other listed venture funds like IP Group or Imperial Innovations in the university space, you know, they have billion dollar market caps. And I think we can get there, uh, you know, relatively uh, shortly, hopefully. And uh, that's quite exciting and motivating, not, not only to be out there investing in other entrepreneurs and hopefully building uh, billion dollar companies with them, but, you know, hopefully it adds a little bit of uh, credibility to us as uh, somebody who wants entrepreneurs want us to work with them if we can say oh yeah we also built our own billion dollar company and you know and the best vcs like nicholas and some of the others have been through that entrepreneurial angel vc route because they they understand and i guess although we may have not done tech startups we certainly have done you know built a startup to you know to a to post ipo that makes sense so i guess tricky question if we ask one of your portfolio company founders to describe you what do you think they'd say and obviously, there's the good, the bad. There's probably not much ugly, um, but certainly good and bad. Yeah, every every journey uh, is different. Um, I think we, you know, we. I do value culture uh, in, in our firm, and I think the culture of the firm. I might be wrong, but my guess is I think people see us. We are hardworking, uh, no bullshit, um, open uh, with people. Um, Be direct. I think we try to be as direct. You know, VCs are terrible at saying no because uh, you know a lot of our our job involves uh, constantly keeping open to opportunities, and, and you know, saying no can close the door. So you try and keep everything open. So we, 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 when we say no to somebody, we try and give them a reason to stay in touch and explain why we said no. But it's not always easy with thousands of people coming in to see us. Um, uh, with our portfolio, I, I, I hope we try and add value. We certainly, when things need. Uh, uh, to be addressed and problems need to be fixed or strategies need to be developed people need to be hired we hope we get you know I would expect myself and all of my team are known to be quite hands-on uh, and helpful um, I think we know what we don't know as well so you know we don't try and get involved in things that we're not good at and try and push our opinions on you know how to uh, you know how best to run a sales and marketing strategy you know that's that's the entrepreneur's job we asked one of your portfolio founders to uh, describe you and uh, this is what they actually said Simon is a very entrepreneurial VC. When he invested, he could see the wave of social networking rising and what we had built with very little investment. Despite us having offers from more than one VC at the time for the same deal, Simon Cook and Stuart Chapman, one of his fellow partners in crime, impressed me so much that due to the nature of how collaborative they were at the time, we had to say yes. When things became tough at Wayne post the 2008 crash and the chips were down, he was opportunistic to protect his investment and made a move to control the majority of Wayne, which we managed to fend off. Whilst I think it would have been better to get some advance notice, we didn't take it personally, and actually we understood his rationale because he explained the whole thing very clearly. If anything, it made us better entrepreneurs and it helped us grow up fast. We also managed to find another VC to buy out their position and give them a relatively good portion of their money back at the time, considering they were looking to exit as they were at the end of the life fund. Uh, sorry, end of the life of the fund. I always respected Simon and I continue to do so. I'm a big fan. Simon is super creative and understands the needs of the entrepreneur being one himself. I think he's evolved in his own approach since he initially invested, just like I have after years of experience. 
Over the past few years and since the disposal, we've become very good friends and provided each other help where we can, which I think says a lot about the relationship and him as a person. I'd be happy and even delighted to recommend Simon as an investor and would certainly approach him myself if I was one day looking to raise funds for a future endeavour. He'd be one of the first people I turn to. I would not do that if I didn't respect his knowledge and approach in investing. He's old school in a good way, but can be down with the kids at the same time. Just watch out for the backflips. <laughs> what do you think about that approach, that, that comment? He was obviously talking about a cricketer. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the wrong one. Oh, he's done it again. Bloody hell. Okay. Well, let's. let's um, uh, any comments on that? Or no, I, you know, I think that's. Uh, that, that's very kind. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you're going to be in this market, uh, you are going to be working with the same. You know, we back serial entrepreneurs over and over again. So you can't you can't be too short term. Of course, we have a fiduciary duty to our. It's not our money. Um, you know, if things are going sideways, we do have to protect the the people in our funds, but in the right way. So we try and find a solution. And in, in this particular case, we found a solution where we got some. And we left enough for everybody to go forward. So I think it was a very creative partnership. One of the things that um, we are known for is creativity. And I think we always try and find a solution that, that fits everybody. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Um, thanks, Pete. <laughs> so final couple of questions then to wrap up. You're clearly a very successful man. So what actually keeps you motivated to go to work every day and constantly build more? Do you, do you ever feel content? I yeah I don't know uh, as to the last comment about uh, being down with the cool kids I don't know I'm uh, I love uh, new ideas uh, I love energy I uh, I love technology and I think there's so much and and I love entrepreneurship and we're in this revolution now in Europe where I guess it's been going on uh, for twenty thirty years in the valley if not longer but we really are you know for me entrepreneurship is becoming a legitimate career choice um, you know startups are the new rock and roll and. Uh, everything I've been doing for 20 years is now just in Europe starting to really blossom. So if you go back to the Valley in the mid 90s, you know, DFJ and Sequoia were raising 100, 150 million dollar funds in the mid 90s. They then scaled up and are the brand names that you know, dominate the industry today. I'm very much excited and believe that Europe's going through that. So over the next decade, those of us that stick with it and invest and build and back the best entrepreneurs will be the brand names and institutions that back generations of European entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm hugely proud of European technology and having spent 10 years trying to convince people there's, there's value here, or 20 years even. I mean, just to wrap up, they say it's lonely at the top. Do you agree with that statement? I think it can be very lonely uh, at the top running an organisation because you always have to keep a brave face. And I think I've learned, you know, sometimes if you don't keep that motivational brave face through the tough times, you, you can have challenges. So you do have to steer the ship even though... Uh, you know, you may be in troubled waters. Um, and that can be lonely because actually what you want to do is scream and shout and bang your head against the wall. Mm -hmm. um, so there are support groups, groups like ICE and YPO and others I found very useful as an entrepreneur CEO to be able to find uh, and you know, hang out with other entrepreneurs uh, and openly share, you know, what's really going on. And that, so the way to deal with the loneliness at the top, you know, is to find other people in similar situations and to be open and sharing. And there's, there's you know, great groups like ICE and YPO and others out there that allow you to do that. And finally, just to end on a, uh, a positive, inspiring note, as I know you're an inspiring man. So uh, what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs who are building businesses today who might one day come knock on your door? <clears throat> yeah, I think um, what, what, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> never ask a man for advice on a hangover. <laughs> yeah, no. I, you know, I, I, so I think um, 
you know, this this model of what can a startup achieve? What can a small... I think we are entering a, a realm where it is truly unbelievable what a startup entrepreneur and risk advent, uh, venture capital can achieve. And I think for me, the most exciting combination of that is the idea that SpaceX, you know, a 10-year-old VC-funded startup is actually going to take a man into space very soon. Um, you know, has won the contract to supply people into the space station. You know, if, in, previously only governments could do that. It was, you know, it's just impossible to think that a startup can do that. And so if, for me, it's so important. If we're entering, a, you know, there's no industry, no company too big that is not going to be able, that you can attack. So if you, you know, be ambitious, be brave, find similarly minded investors uh, and you will have a journey, a hell of a journey, but there's nothing that cannot be accomplished with the startup model today, as evidenced by Elon, you know, taking men to space with a venture backed startup. Very true. So if in doubt, be Elon, um, <laughs> which is which is fair to say. So thank you very much for your time, Simon. Um, you. It was great getting to know some of the uh, deeper details of where the Draper name comes from and indeed the history of VC, which uh, I think was an added bonus. Um, and not really a surprise that you would know all those details because uh, you are a very detail-focused man. But uh, for the listeners, I hope that you've learned a lot about uh, what it takes to be a VC and also some of the traits you should have as an entrepreneur looking for venture capital funding or just building a successful business. So thank you very much. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow search for mindset win on youtube and on your favorite podcast app so this is the saddest moment Richard and I have had in a long long time I'm crying a little bit yeah he's crying a little bit inside but um Really hope that you enjoyed the lessons and learnings from Mr. Simon Cook. We started the whole series off, if you can remember, with Nick Jenkins, the famous investor wow. on Dragon's Den and founder of Moonpig. Exactly. Um, so feels we started. Like, feels like the end of term. It does a little bit. Like the end of term. Yeah. Um, so we started with Nick and we ended with Simon. So um, I guess in many ways, one investor to another, and in another perspective, one entrepreneur to another. So it just shows the kind of cycles and journeys you go on through this kind of career and I say kind of career I mean it's uh, more of a, a lifestyle but whatever you want to call it um, and I think that you know from our personal perspective um, the candid nature in which uh, Simon actually explained the details of how deals get done how raising money works and what it was like in Silicon Valley originally when venture capital first got created um, is a perfect way to end the first series um, giving some insight into how companies really function on the inside, how they raise that money and how they grow. So from my point of view, really hope that you guys have um, learned things this series, that you've um, heard a few gems from some fascinating people. Um, if there's anything that you think we've done right, anything you think we've done wrong, anything that we can improve for next season, we're all ears. We already have some fantastic guests lined up. We've got founders of Just Eat, of Made, of Charles Tirrett shirts. Yep. We have like a whole array of people but we're open to suggestions so if you think we need more rising stars if you think that we have uh, too many heavy hitters less just, Dan Murray yeah less of me just let us know 
yes, you can do that by emailing us at hello at secretleaders.com or just find Dan Murray on Facebook and send him a message. I'm sure he'd love that. Just harass me. Just harass him. So, yeah, until the next series, we're going to take a bit of a break now, but we will see you in a few months. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.